0: Hi, everyone. This is the latest episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast series developed by the Samuel Dewitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity and Justice, also known as the Proctor Institute. I'm your host today. My name is Brandy and I'm the director for programs and communications for the Proctor Institute. I have the pleasure today of interviewing Kate Slater, who I regard very highly, not only because she was my graduate school advisor in the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers program, but she also has a lot of really great things to say about a lot of the things that are kind of happening in the world right now. Um, And it's incredibly relevant and incredibly timely to kind of have her discuss some of these things. So I just wanted to welcome Kate and we can get started. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, anything you want to share? Sure.
1: Hi, Brandy. So I'm really excited to be on this. Um, So my name is Kate Slater, and my pronouns are she and her and hers. And uh, as Brandy mentioned, I work at the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers. I'm going into my seventh year there. And the IRT is an incredible organization that is attempting to move the needle um, towards racial equity and parity in uh, the educational sector in this country. And the way that we attempt to do that is by supporting um, students of color and advocates of diversity in applying to master's and PhD programs, um, understanding, first of all, that they're going to be entering into the educational sector and influencing generations of students, but also recognizing um, the numerous stopgaps that exist in accessing graduate programs for all students, but especially students of color, whether that is um, financial or seeking out mentorship or um, knowing how to um, just go about the incredibly murky and confusing process of applying to graduate programs. So that's where the IRT really steps in. It is an incredible organization. Um, And like I said, I'm going into my seventh year. And my experience at the IRT really um, prompted me to understand as a white woman, the systems of racism that are embedded in all of the educational sectors in this country. So I'm also a doctoral candidate at the University of New Hampshire in the Education department and I'm pursuing my PhD in educational leadership and policy in the higher education track. Um, so I'm writing my dissertation now, which is <laughs> speaking of stop gaps has been a bit <laughs> of a, a stop and go process. but um, my my dissertation is exploring, the experiences of students of color at predominantly white institutions, and in particular, the ways in which uh, pre-summer college bridge programs, um, excuse me, pre-college summer bridge programs, you see how far away from it I've been, (laughs) pre-college summer bridge programs can really create um, community and um, uh, help promote academic self-efficacy among students of color who uh, are at um, predominantly white institutions. And so I'm also uh, a professor at, at University of New Hampshire. I'm a <laughs> professor, maybe that's aspirational. I'm a lecturer, and I teach the course uh, Teaching Race. And then in, in my spare time, whatever that might look like, I'm also a mom and uh, a wife and a very slow runner. And I also am really engaged in anti-racist work, both as a scholar and as an educator myself. And especially in the past few weeks, um, I have really been doubling down on talking to white people about what anti-racism looks like and what allyship looks like. And I understand that that is a, a term that's very fraught, and, and I understand that. Um, but having white people, I think, who may have undergone a bit of a racial awakening in the past 45 to 50 days to really help them conceptualize um what their role has been in, in the racial uprising that we're in right now, what, you know, it perhaps the ways in which they've been complicit and really not perhaps the ways in which they've been complicit, but to also help them think about what it might mean for them to dismantle, um, and more fully understand these, uh, the ways in which they've been complicit. Um, I believe that anti-racist work is, uh, Should never be taken on as kind of an exercise in our own, and I'm speaking on behalf of white people here, our own self improvement, but that it should always um, be done in the spirit of moving towards liberation from oppression for black and brown individuals. And so I've been really working on hosting webinars and writing articles and having individual conversations in my area about how white people can engage in this work sustainably, um, recognizing that fundamentally the end goal would mean they would be giving up um, a a significant degree of white privilege.
0: That was my rant, Brandy. Was that a good enough start? That was amazing. (laughs) That was incredible. That was perfect. I mean, you talked a little bit about the kind of the different roles that you hold, but I want to really narrow in on one particular role, and that's your role as an educator. Mm -hmm. So particularly as an educator, what would you say is your, your approach to developing your course content and structure? And then can you also talk a little bit about your goals as an educator? What do you want to kind of accomplish or what do you want to accomplish with your students?
1: So um, in terms of the course that I taught teaching race, I inherited a a really great syllabus from a a faculty member who had previously taught the course. But when I inherited the syllabus, I was really struck by um, the ways in which the content was was 95% historical and didn't really deconstruct whiteness. So if I'm thinking about a course teaching race and I'm teaching about the history of race and racism in this country, Yes, I I simultaneously have to be centering voices of people who have been erased from history, but I am also committed to doing that in tandem with supporting my white students in dismantling their own white supremacist framework. So the way that I describe it is both um, an unlearning and a relearning, and I think that these two goals need to happen in tandem. The students are relearning a uh, a view of American history that. Um, that has them be critical and develop a framework in thinking about whose stories have been erased and what are the stories that we are hearing and why. So if we're receiving very one-dimensional, very whitewashed, very um, American exceptionalism type stories of American history, uh, why have been, we been receiving that? And then a a simultaneous unlearning of their own whiteness and the ways in which their whiteness um, is a reflection of these one-dimensional stories that they've received, and ways in which they have to begin to deconstruct that worldview, deconstruct an understanding of their privilege. Um, Many of the students that I taught, well, first of all, all of them were white, and many of them want to be educators, and there is only so far that we. Uh, as educators can go to teach a quote-unquote alternative view of American history if we haven't also deconstructed our own complicity in those systems. Um, So I really wanted, uh, as a main goal, to center whiteness a lot more in the conversations. um, Because again, the syllabus was purely historical. And my goals were to really have students start thinking about the ways in which the histories that they read about are alive and well. And the ways in which history is repeating itself, the ways in which they can draw connections between what was happening during uh, Reconstruction and then the Jim Crow era and, and the parallels between that and um, the Obama presidency versus the presidency we're in right now. I won't say his name if I can. Um, but this was something that was really important to me because I want them to understand that in order to deconstruct the myth of American exceptionalism, they have to reckon with the fact that the needle has moved very little in terms of uh, the movement towards liberation for black and brown people of color. And I want them to know that they, as white people, have directly benefited from this kind of recycling of history. So a lot of what we did in the class was draw parallels between what they were reading about and what is happening now. And that was really a, a really critical goal for me, for them to not only relearn history, but also go through their own racial awakening, if you will.
0: Awesome. Wow. Yeah, I think that's really important. I, and I really enjoy how you kind of you structured it almost as if these things have to happen in tandem, right? Like right. so that was really important for me to kind of hear just as a person who's who's doing similar work, but also as a as a black person who's looking to kind of move this movement forward as well. So thank you for sharing that. So I guess with regard to kind of the history of of race in America, but also with regard to the fact that a lot of people would believe, even though this might be a little dated, that we live in a post-racial society following the presidency of Barack Obama. And also given just the the perceived progress of underrepresented communities, including increased representation, more stories that center, marginalized peoples, but also more economic mobility and access that exists now that has not existed in the past. Many folks from marginalized Communities were probably disagreed. So, as an educator, and given the kind of current socio political climate, mm. why do you think this knowledge that you are teaching to your students is so important right now? And I'm particularly interested in kind of like your reasoning for why it's important for young people, particularly white young people, to learn about the importance of uh, or value of dismantling American exceptionalism and also deconstructing white supremacist worldviews?
1: Mm. Well, you know, I think one of the things that I've really tried to help my students realize is that American exceptionalism gives all of us a pass, right? So if we operate from the framework that America is blameless or that we're the pinnacle of success globally, there's nowhere to go from there, right? There's nowhere that 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 implies that we've we uh, have evolved in all of the ways that we should, right? And yet, you know, the the K-12 curriculum that many of these students received minimizes the stories of POCs and historically oppressed folks, or or it simply erases them altogether. And I wanted my students to think about why, because that erasure is not an accident, right? It's deliberate. And so I think that by providing providing a a historical context that centers the voices of, of Black people and people of color again the students could begin to recognize that very little has shifted in the sociopolitical climate when we're talking about the protests of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s and the ways in which Colin Kaepernick was excoriated and ostracized by the media and by his employers the NFL you know it's easy for students to suddenly realize that things have not changed they're they've just they've just reconfigured right and You know, to your point, um, I think many of my students came in thinking that we live in a post-racial society. I mean, for so many of them, their worldviews have been really, um, they've been preserved by their teachers, by the K-12 curriculum they receive, by their parents, by their friends. Many of them being white and coming from New Hampshire or New England have never really uh, had any kind of challenge to their worldview. And so to your point, Um, I wanted to dismantle that for them because it was only when white people can recognize that America is in many ways not exceptional um, and that white supremacy is alive and well and thriving and endemic in all systems in this society. It is only from that understanding that the students can begin to understand the work that they need to do to dismantle these systems. And especially because many of these undergraduates future educators, I really, really wanted them to have this context when they think about the influence that they'll have on the next generation. Um, we have, I fully believe America is not exceptional. And, um, you know, the time, uh, following reconstruction was called the great nadir, um, in terms of the ways in which it dramatically rolled back, um, Rights and and progress and the ability to thrive for Black people in this country, and I see the the presidency of '45 as as very similar um, in the ways in which um, the the rights and uh, the liberties of people of color in this country have always been under threat, but now uh, I think it is in the limelight in a way where it's it's constant, right? The chipping away at the liberties is really extraordinary. Um, And I want my white students to see that, to not only see it, but to recognize why they haven't seen it before, right? And that all comes from this myth of American exceptionalism.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think that that's a really great point. So you talked about moving the needle forward, right? Or influencing the next generation to move towards liberation. So Mm -hmm. what can we do to move the needle forward to move more towards liberation? But more specifically, what can institutions and educators do to incorporate and embed particular lessons regarding race and whiteness in the classroom?
1: So I think the first thing that all educators have to be comfortable doing is normalizing conversations around race and racism. I still remember day one of the class that I took, I mean, I was basically shouting every one of us is a racist at all the white students, not to scare them, but to certainly set a tone for the kind of conversations we were going to be having. And, you know, five students dropped out. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think it was important for me to set a precedent that we were not going to shirk. Um, the responsibilities of having these kind of frank conversations. Um, I think that normalizing conversations around race and whiteness, especially for white people, is something deeply uncomfortable because many of us were raised thinking that if we are um, on the side of equality, that w- we're colorblind. Right. This is this is nothing new. But we thought if if we are if we are progressive, if we are liberal white people, then we don't quote unquote see color. And part of that comes from these this erasure around frank, honest, vulnerable conversations about race and racism, and as white people, the ways in which we benefit from these systems. So one of the things that I did was really hit the ground running in terms of saying, we are going to have really frank and sometimes brutal conversations, because you must be talking in this way. There's no way to kind of Soften the blow of dismantling white supremacy, right? And in fact, I think that the tendency of white people to soften the blow, to kind of—I mean, I'm going to go on a rant right now—but I certainly see it in terms of of well, Robin D'Angelo writes about this white fragility, right? So many white people are really unable to kind of take the the pain and the guilt and the shame that comes from an understanding of systems of white supremacy. But we have to move through that if we're going to disrupt it at all. So I really, in my classroom, sought to establish the differences between a safe space versus a brave space. And I really talked to my students about the ways in which we were going to challenge each other. Um, And this this was going to be a space where they should be comfortable asking hard questions that they might not have a space to ask in other areas of their life. But we were also going to implicate ourselves, and we were going to challenge each other in that space as well. The other thing that I did, obviously, was center the voices of historically erased populations and illustrate these stories as full and nuanced and thorough. You know, so many of us, especially white people in the K-12 educational system, we get these sound bites, you know, of of famous um, famous American figures that are people of color. You know, Rosa Parks is a tired old lady. Martin Luther King is a pacifist. The Black Panthers were terrorists. These These narratives that are so one-dimensional and simplistic, and they're simplistic for a reason, right? But there's so much more multi-layered and complicated than that. So when I talked to my students about the stories that they had received in their K-12 system and the stories that we were going to be digging into now in this class, I wanted them to seek out the fullest extent of the story. You know, for many of my students, it was earth-shattering for them to hear the similarities between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King because the narrative they'd always received was Martin Luther King, good pacifist, Malcolm X, you know, stirs the pot. And some of them said, I thought he was a terrorist. And yet the words that they were saying were so parallel to each other in many ways. And so I really wanted them to develop a a critical consciousness about these stories that they were hearing and how one-dimensional they were. And when they heard those stories to seek out who was
0: telling them and why would they be telling them in a particular way? Awesome. Um, So, I mean, I think that that's a really good kind of place to start. You mentioned that, you know, you had kind of frank conversations in your course that could be seen as deeply uncomfortable for many of your students. You mentioned that white fragility often carries the guilt and the shame that, that happens when you're having these conversations that would be perceived by many as difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate the fact that you set kind of a context and created a space where bravery was championed, but also where difficult conversations could flourish. In addition to that, you did—you were very intentional with kind of creating a space where voices and stories of black and brown folks were centered. So I appreciate your work on that. So I'm just curious, did you encounter any challenges while teaching race in a predominantly white class and a predominantly white school? <laughs> 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 I am not to share any stories. Um, it's really interesting, I'm just interested to know um, whether or not there were any additional challenges other than the ones that you kind of mentioned.
1: Oh, so many, so many. So I think frankly, one of the biggest challenges was the baseline that we were all starting from. Um, you know, so many of these students, like I mentioned, they come from predominantly, if not entirely, white areas, and they have never, ever, ever had a frank conversation with their parents, with their peers, with their teachers about race. So when I say we started from basic. I mean, we had to establish that race is a social construct, not not a biological one. We had to establish that we are not in a post-racial age, that racism is alive and well, not a thing of the past. So I think, quite frankly, some of my challenges were just acknowledging where each different student was individually and and affirming that experience, even if we could simultaneously recognize how far many of them had to go. Um, So many of them had never thought about Systems of race and white supremacy critically, but I, I I also think that's really important to relay because it indicates a school system that is you know the norms in many in many states in this country. you know the students' viewpoints and lack of exposure to again quote unquote alternative histories um, are too often the norm um, and then you know, I think quite frankly, my other challenge was. I, I don't think I'll just say I didn't accomplish this. Well, the the expectation at a, a state institution in a somewhat conservative state that I not bring my political leanings into the classroom. Well, that's frankly, that's kind of impossible when you're talking about systems of white supremacy now. I mean, we have a president who is uh, supports uh, white supremacists and, um, ex, you know, expounds his own white supremacist views. So it's very hard it was impossible for me as an educator to somehow take both sides of the aisle seriously in this realm. Um, and I didn't, and quite frankly, that was, that was a choice I made because I, I simply reflected that if I was going to present both sides as having merit and weight, both political leanings as having merit and weight, it would be erasing all of the, unbelievable human rights violations that have been happening over the past four years. And so I just didn't do it. And, um, you know, I think that that's something there's so much, um, there's so much effort on behalf of colleges and universities to really be seen as spaces that, that value discourse and value, um, argumentation and debate, um, But the way I see it is that you can't be a university and put out a statement that uh, affirms Black Lives Matter and then also turn around and say, but we're going to privilege a conservative view here um, when you have a president who's called Black Lives Matter a terrorist organization. You simply can't. And I think on some level, universities need to just make a decision on where they're going to stand. Because historically, universities have always been hostile spaces, with very few exceptions, have been hostile spaces to students of color. And I'll say predominantly white institutions. And um, meanwhile, they've been, you know, accused of being liberal hotbeds by the right. Uh, but in my mind, you know, that just means we're teaching critical thinking and we're teaching people to question the status quo. So that that also was a bit of a rant. But I had a very, well, I'll put it quite frankly, I did not remain bipartisan in my classroom. Um, I let my political leanings um, be alive and well because, um, you know, the personal is political there. Um, I'd say the last thing I was challenged by, actually, I have two more, if that's okay. (laughs) So I think um, this was a challenge that was actually just practical. Um, My syllabus really focused on uh, the black-white binary in American history. We really focused on the particular pervasiveness of anti-blackness in American history. But that was at the expense of exploring the histories of Latinx individuals and indigenous populations. And this was something I was very challenged by. And to be quite frank, if I look at my syllabus, I absolutely did not include those stories as much. Um, so that, that was something that being reflective about certainly in future iterations of this class, I would really, really like to focus on, on weaving those stories together more intentionally um, instead of really focusing on anti-Blackness and then, quite frankly, treating the stories of, of Latinx individuals and Indigenous Individuals, as you know, kind of a a secondary focus of the course, as opposed to all three being in in tandem with each other. And then the last thing I think was a big challenge was just helping students conceptualize what everyday racism looks like in their lives. Um, We read Eduardo Bonilla Silva's Racism Without Racists because I really wanted them to understand the myriad forms that racism takes and the ways in which historically it constantly shifts to support and uphold racist policies. And for them, reading these central frames of colorblind racism, I wanted them to recognize themselves in those stories. um, Because I think that the tendency of white folks who come from white states and are at a predominantly white institution is to think of racism and white supremacy as something extreme, something um, that therefore is so extreme that they, they don't practice it themselves. And I wanted them to really understand the ways in which they're complicit in enacting racism, both covertly and overtly, in their day-to-day interactions. And so that was a challenge. But I also think, first of all, Eduardo Bonilla-Silva, that book should be taught in every single college, <laughs> in every single high school across the country. But it, it was a really good foundational starting place for them, even though it was pretty dense. Thank you.
0: So I think you you mentioned that there's often a lack of exposure to alternative histories, um, and that is the norm, and I completely agree with you. Um, I also appreciate that you talked about kind of the areas where you can improve as an educator. I think that being honest with yourself, holding yourself accountable, and being incredibly intentional are important for anyone who wants to do kind of similar work. What advice would you give to educators who are looking to do similar deconstructive work in their courses or in their classrooms with peers? Um, Any advice would be helpful?
1: Mm. So one of my first uh, words of advice, excuse me, is to think beyond what constitutes traditional scholarship. I think um, they're really foundational scholars to incorporate in in courses on race and racism. But I think that um, as many of us educators know, traditional scholarship and, and uh, academia in general have often treated the voices and the lived experiences and the research of um, historically oppressed populations by historically oppressed populations as other or on the margins um, and has not centered it. And meanwhile, there are so many contemporary scholars and educators that are doing traditional work, um, excuse me, that are doing really incredible work that goes beyond the traditional modes of, of curriculum. So it, for my students, um, I had them look at a lot of contemporary scholars like Nicole Hannah-Jones, like ta Coates. We read uh, Zeus Leonardo. Um, we read a lot of um, contemporary scholars that are doing really interesting transdisciplinary work that also centers the voices of marginalized uh, populations as salient and, and rich and complex and worthy of study and focus. Um, and that was something really important to me because i really wanted my students to begin to think beyond what traditional research looks like and start to recognize the value that podcasts held the value of of documentaries um the the value of you know traditional um or excuse me um online periodicals that are putting out the kind of uh <laughs> quite frankly um amazing thought pieces that other traditional textbooks don't have. And I really wanted to think about, um, I wanted them to think about scholarship a little bit more critically, whose works historically have been um, foregrounded and whose works have been erased. And the other advice that I would give to educators is, is I touched on this a little earlier on, but not to shy away from frank and rich conversations about whiteness, white supremacy and racism. This is not the time to be politic or to hold both sides of the story in equal weight, to be quite frank. There is a side of history that seeks to erase the challenges, obstacles, oppression of and and lived experiences of people of color. And quite frankly, it is not my responsibility as an educator to pretend that that side of history deserves equal attention or merit as the side that is seeking to right past historical wrongs and center the stories that have previously been erased. If anything, I think educators need to walk away from their understanding of white supremacy and racism, recognizing that if they have avoided topics of of racism in the classroom, or as Angela Davis said, if they have been not racist in the classroom, and there are other synonyms like that, egalitarian, um, equity-minded, multicultural, etc. cetera. It's not enough for them to be not racist. As educators, we have to be anti-racist. And I think that terminology has really entered into the white cultural lexicon in a huge way over the past few weeks, but it extends to the classroom. It's not enough for teachers to be not racist. They must actively be combating racism in the works that they highlight, in the stories that they share and in their pedagogical praxis.
0: Thank you. I agree. I I think that we need to look outside of the traditional modes of scholarship. I think it's so important that we think about scholarship in a critical way as well. Mm. Um, And I agree that introducing transdisciplinary work that centers the voices of marginalized peoples, but also being actively anti-racist is a really great way to approach this work in general. And it's vital in order to move these conversations forward and to move us towards kind of this liberation. I just wanted to end this conversation with something that can be used, something that is a little more tangible or just tangible in general. For those who are listening who may be white educators or just any white person or anyone who's trying to move this conversation forward or adjust their support towards marginalized communities and provide an alternative view on whitewashed American history, what are some of the steps that they can begin to take today mm-hmm. to shift their perspective in their personal lives but also in their classrooms?
1: Oh, that's a great one. So I'll start with the classroom. So one of the most important things to me in setting up my classroom was establishing a democratic classroom space and um, modeling vulnerability in my classroom. This was the first time I'd ever taught undergraduates, and I said that within the first five minutes of teaching my course, because I wanted my students to understand that we were going to be learning together. I think especially in higher education, there's a tendency for educators to uh, take the stance that they have the knowledge and they are them imparting their knowledge and wisdom on their students. And for me, I recognize that I had as much to learn from my students' lived experiences as they did to, to learn from my own historical viewpoints. And that's just recognizing the community cultural wealth of students, right? That's just recognizing that lived experiences, again, are valid and salient and relevant and rich. Um, So I modeled vulnerability. And by establishing democratic norms, I also invited students to, to in many ways, craft the learning experience that they wanted. So I had frequent check-ins with my students. I sent anonymous surveys. I spent class time just asking them uh, essentially how we could improve and how they reflected on on the previous food classes that they had been in. So, you know, halfway through the class, they said, it's too much reading. We really like the podcast. We find them very engaging. And so I tweaked my my syllabus to um, try and replace some of the very dense readings with, um, with uh, you know, podcasts or, or other forms of media that they found really engaging. And that's not, you know, I think again when we we think about the different modalities of curriculum this is not somehow <laughs> you know taking away from a particular learning experience right i think there're plenty of faculty that privilege textual analysis as being you know the pinnacle of of academia of of scholarship and for me you know first of all i recognize that a lot of research again doesn't center these voices and so for me it was really important to go to these other forms of, of scholarship to to find the stories that were missing. And so this, you know, this is something where I actively listened to the students' voices and adjusted the curriculum to to make space for what they wanted. Um, I think another thing that was really important for me as a white educator was um, to model a willingness to implicate myself. So often in the classroom, if I said something that gave me pause. Uh, it, either it, sounded, it, it came across as racist, or it was racist, or it was a reflection of my white supremacist worldview, or even it landed a little bit askance. I would stop. I would talk through my thinking process with the students. And if I needed to learn something from it, I invited the students into that learning process. Because as, as many white educators know, If they are actively anti-racist in the movement towards liberation, they are going to mess up. That's a fundamental part of anti-racist work, um, is is recognizing that we are going to fail. We are going to fail because we we are, as white educators, have racist worldviews and we benefit from white supremacy. And where the rubber meets the road is when we are willing to own up to our failures and dig in and do better. And that comes from a place of educating ourselves, right? So I paused classroom conversations to talk to students about why I said a thing and what it meant, because I wanted them to practice that vulnerability and and that self-reflection in their own spaces. Um, I wanted them to have a critical eye towards their language, towards the stories they were telling, towards the ways in which they spoke about themselves as well as other populations. And... um, So, you know, that often meant I was put in these positions of embarrassment and, again, vulnerability. But I think that was a really, really, really key thing to model for my students. And then the last thing I would say is just as we recognize as white educators that we are going to mess up and we have to learn how to do better, I also wanted my students to recognize that their education was never finished their anti-racist education, and that in tandem with that, my own anti-racist education is never finished. It is a lifetime of work. Um, Really, we could say as white people, our anti-racist education will be finished when liberation for historically marginalized populations occurs, and until that day, we have to recognize that our work is never done. So for me, that meant that I had to get really comfortable saying, I don't know. That for me, I had to get really comfortable saying, I don't understand quite what I'm talking about here, but we're going to go dig in and find out the answers together. I think that to sum all this up, if I could, there is a profound level of humility that is required to be a white educator and really be digging into anti-racist work because you have to own, you have to own up and admit to your failings constantly. But it is only from there that we can begin to move through it, because just like the myth of American exceptionalism, if we don't own up to our mistakes, we're pretending that we've got it right. And clearly, from the disparities in the K-12 educational system and the higher education system, we don't have it figured out. So yeah, that's what I would say: modeling vulnerability, establishing democratic norms, a willingness to implicate ourselves as white educators, and and recognizing that our own anti-racist work is a lifetime practice, a lifetime of work. Wow,
0: that was amazing. (laughs) <laughs> that was great. Um, I just wanted to say, like, just thank you overall. Um, I, I agree. I, I don't think the work stops at all. And it's not very easy work, like you mentioned. Um, but I really do appreciate your vulnerability. I appreciate your wisdom. I appreciate the perspective you shared with us today, your honesty, and just overall the work that you're doing to kind of model this vulnerability for your students. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kate, so much. Um, but I'm, I'm beyond appreciative for who you are and for your voice as well well. And I know that all of the listeners will also learn a tremendous amount of information from you that they can use in their daily lives. So thank you. Of course. Thank you, Brandy. So before we wrap up, I just wanted to check in to see if you had any final comments or anything else you wanted to share. Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um,
1: well, the first thing I would say is that um, everyone should check out the work of the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers. Um, we are an extraordinary organization. So we're this uh, scrappy Little outreach program that's located at Phillips Andover. And for 30 years, we've been supporting scholars of color in pursuing their masters and PhDs. And at this point in time, we have approximately 3,000 alumni that are working in the K 12 system. They're working as professors, they're working as provosts and deans and policymakers and superintendents. They've founded nonprofits. And they are just, the IRT does unbelievable work. So I would highly encourage everyone to check it out. You can go to irt.andover.edu and learn a little bit more about the work that we're doing and perhaps even support us or recommend someone that you know think about applying for a year-long fellowship. Um, that's what I would say. I feel so lucky in many ways. No, I just feel so lucky full stop. The IRT is really the space where I began to develop a critical consciousness as an educator. and. I, I fully admit that I was well into my 20s before I even began to start the process of digging into systems of white supremacy, to systemic racism in the educational sector. And it was the IRT that gave me that framework and that language and that knowledge. And I'm so grateful to that organization. Um, and so everyone should check it out.
0: I would just like to echo that as an IRT alumna, And we can definitely include a link for the IRT so you can learn a little bit more. Thank you again, Kate, so much for everything. I think this went fantastic and I think that the folks are really gonna enjoy it. Thank you, Brandy. This was amazing. I'm so excited to get to talk to you again. (laughs)
1: Yes, you too. (laughs) All right, talk to you soon. Bye.